0: After years of hard work, sacrifices and dedication, one young woman was on the path to making all of her dreams come true. A new job, an apartment of her own and her very first car were all achievements that she was so very proud of. A man so close to her, so loved by her, and whom she thought loved her too, was watching her succeed during this time, but instead of joy and pride, resentment was building. Bitter for his own failings, and unable to accept accountability for his own behaviours, he did something so horrific that the small town of Clanwilliam would never forget. And on that fateful day in October, the only mistake that this woman would make would be to trust the wrong person. This is the heartbreaking case of Alison Plykes. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Alison Pleikes was born on September 9th, 1993 and grew up in the small semi-rural farming town of Swellendam. Fun fact, Swellendam also happens to be the fifth oldest town in South Africa. The town is home to under 20,000 inhabitants and also houses over 50 provincial heritage sites. It's a beautiful place surrounded by tall mountain peaks and gorgeous valleys. It is also, however, a town of great income inequality and widespread poverty. Alison in a lower income home and although she did not have access to luxuries that other kids may have, she always had everything she needed. As a child she was always happy though, described as being full of life. She also grew up extremely close to her mother. As she grew up she left a strong mark and imprint on all those who knew her, her sense of humour often bringing her friends and family to tears. With laughter, that is. As she completed her school education, she matriculated and decided that she wanted to become a teacher. She then enrolled in a university in Mowbray, Cape Town. Her family, however, could not afford for her to move and live in Cape Town, and so every single day she would make the two and a half hour trek, one way mind you, to university to attend lectures. And as you can probably imagine, travelling five hours a day became incredibly taxing, but she kept it up. She kept going, even through difficult times and even failures. Her hard work, sacrifice and dedication would later lead to her achieving her teacher's diploma. Her dedication to her dream was crucial for her, as she wanted to create a life that she had only dreamed of growing up. Along the way though, she never lost her kindness or her soft heart. On one occasion, her laptop was stolen from her, but instead of holding a grudge, she had told her friends that perhaps the person who stole it needed it more than she did. She was known for her kind heart. Before long, not only did she secure a job as a grade 5 Afrikaans teacher at Cedarburg Primary School, but she moved into her own apartment and even purchased her first vehicle, a Hyundai i20 that she was so proud of. Her family, her friends, her community shared that pride too. But something was brewing just beneath the surface, with someone whom she had become incredibly close to. To avoid keeping you in suspense any much longer, let me explain. In 2013, while studying in Marbury for her teaching diploma, she met fellow student, Philip April. He was also from far away, growing up in Clan William, and so he would also make a two and a half hour journey every day to university. Clan William is a town in the Olifants River Valley in the Western Cape, about 200 kilometers north of. Cape Town. And if you can believe it, its population is even smaller than that of Swellendam. An interesting fact is that Clan William is regarded as the only town in the entire world where rooibos is planted and cultivated. And much like Swellendam, Clan William is one of the 10 oldest towns in South Africa. But I digress, so back to the story. The two soon became friends and in 2016 they started dating. At first everything was smooth sailing and the happy couple, from the outside at least, looked so in love. Philip would later meet Allison's family, and to them, he was seen as well mannered, respectful, and a wonderful young man. Within the two's relationship, however, after about six months of dating, the warning signs began. Although they were in love, they would fight often, more often than a usual couple would, if there is such a thing as usual. A friend would later testify that Allison had told her that Philip's abuse was not physical, it was verbal. However, during one altercation, he had thrown a beer mug at her. But unfortunately, hindsight is twenty twenty, and Alison, in that moment at least, had decided to stay with him, her love for him overriding everything else. This is actually not as uncommon as you may think, and it's the way in which many dangerous relationships begin, especially those that culminate in violence of many degrees. Now, for a moment, let me explain because maybe this will help someone out there. Every relationship is different, however, the patterns that lead to ultimate volatile situations often look similar. So whilst I will discuss the factors surrounding intimate partner violence later on, I just want to mention some of the warning signs. Besides the obvious ones of verbal abuse and threats of violence, extreme jealousy and possessiveness often lead to nefarious places. This could also include, as an example, continuously accusing your partner of infidelity. The abuser within such a relationship will also often attempt to be the one in control of everything. From the finances and the clothing that their partner wears to the company that their partner keeps. Any problems in the relationship will be blamed on the other partner or the external environment by the abuser as they will often refuse to take responsibility for their own actions. The abuser may also act in a derogatory manner to their partner at times, calling them names or talking down to them. All of these behaviors, which are only the tip of the iceberg, like I said, differ within relationships and are only exacerbated by substance or drug use. So you can see that the violence can be physical, sexual, emotional or psychological. The number one question I'm always asked though is why do women stay with an abusive partner? Let me clarify that sometimes the women asking are the very same ones who find themselves in these situations. The reasons can be tangible and easy to pinpoint if they are financial, for example. However, the waters soon become very murky here. An individual in an abusive relationship may choose to stay because they fear leaving. An individual in an abusive relationship may choose to stay because they fear leaving. And in so many cases, this one in particular, as you will soon see, it's a valid fear. They may also lack support and the resources, not just financial, to be able to leave, maybe even as a result of isolation due to to their abuser. Often the longer these relationships continue, the more the abuser strips the independence and self-worth of their partner. The overarching theme though is love. When the relationship began, the abuser was not as they are now and this can be difficult to reconcile in the mind of their partner and this is often what is exploited by the abuser. The other partner in the relationship wants to believe that the abuse is temporary and caused by work stress or financial difficulties, for example, and that once those are resolved, the abuse will stop to. But unfortunately, the savior belief or the attachment felt towards the abuser is often ill-placed. I, and perhaps you too, can sit on the outside making our assumptions about another couple's relationship and giving our opinions. But ultimately, the mental load of an abusive relationship is not something you can understand, unless you've been in one before. And so, the next time you want to say, oh, well, she should have just left him, know that it's not as always as it may appear. And even if she did, she may not get out a lot. With that, let's move back to our narrative with Alison and Philip. In 2018, the two had been dating for about two years, and Alison eventually graduated with her teaching diploma. Philip should have been graduating with her, but at this point he unfortunately had failed his last module. She too had struggled with the last lot of modules, but she continued to work hard to finally attain her certification. And shortly after graduating, she landed a teaching job in Clan William, where Philip was from. And as life began to work out for her, things were not going the same way for Philip. Although he had managed to attain a position as a student teacher, all he could do until he received his certification, that is, he was not making the progress he had envisioned for himself. And so the weeks went on. Allison purchased her first car, an amazing achievement in itself, and she moved into her very own apartment. Philip, on the other hand, remained at home, living in his mother's house. He also began to drink more heavily. In the months previously, Allison had had many arguments with Philip over his substance use, which was starting to become more like substance abuse. And as his substance abuse increased, their relationship declined. His jealousy and inadequacies grew, and Allison's desire to be with him dwindled. His aggression and insults became more frequent, and he even insulted her family at one stage, calling her parents uneducated as compared to his educated parents. In 2019, as I previously mentioned, Alison was teaching at Cedarburg Primary School. Her colleagues immediately took an extreme liking to her, describing her as a friendly person with a good personality who always helped out and always made their days. On top of the new job, she had also joined a gospel choir during the second half of the year. She absolutely loved singing and the weekend following the shocking event that would occur was when she was actually due to perform with the choir at a show in town. And in the months preceding her death, others would notice bruising on her arms, which she had claimed was from walking into a cupboard door, multiple times. Of course, they suspected otherwise. On one occasion, Alison had even confessed to her friends that Philip held a glass at her head during an argument. During a lunch with colleagues one day, she had all of a sudden blurted out that Philip told her that he was going to kill her and he wanted her all for himself. And so our narrative brings us to the 25th of October, 2019. Philip was set to rewrite his last outstanding module in Cape Town. If he passed this, he would finally have that elusive teacher's diploma. Prior to the day, he had allegedly been studying hard and preparing. But when pen came to paper, it was a different story. He struggled with the exam, knowing that before even receiving the results, he would not have passed it. And that would mean that another six months would have to elapse before he could apply to rewrite that last module again. On the two and a half hour journey home, these thoughts swirled around his mind, lowering his mood and impacting his state of being. He decided that he wanted to see Allison. That would make him feel better. But unfortunately, at this time, she already had plans with a colleague, Javida Stianka, And she told him that she needed to wake up early the next morning in preparation for a school event. In the text messages that were later exchanged between the two, she told him, I don't mean to be rude, but I no longer have to explain anything to you. To which he had replied, yes, I know, but you lie a lot. She responded, I'm not rude, but I'm reminding you because you act like we're still in a relationship. His anger and embarrassment was further exacerbated by what he perceived to be Allison's rejection, even though it was a perfectly normal and understandable response from her end. And so he had returned to his home, his mother's home to think of another way to get what he wanted. That very same evening was spent for Alison with her colleague, having a glass of wine. Her friend would later remark that during the evening, Alison was quieter than usual. She had then disclosed that she was no longer with Philip, citing something to do with his drinking habits. She also confessed that Philip had told her that if she left him, he would kill her. And whilst this conversation was taking place, across the town, Philip was sitting in his home, in his room, seething. The following morning, Philip showed up to Cedarberg Primary, unannounced. Alison had arrived just past 7am to help the tea lady set up for the event that day. She was neither requested or required to do so, but she was always willing to help in any way that she could. And it was around this time that Philip had appeared. In a seemingly kind-hearted gesture, he had brought her lunch, as well as offering to help her out by doing her laundry, as she was going to be at a school event for majority of the day. And all he would need to do this was her apartment key. She was slightly taken aback, a witness would later state. However, she remained calm, obviously thinking that this was just a kind gesture on Philip's behalf. While she took him up on his offer for the laundry, she did reject his offer for lunch. Only because her event at her school was going to be hosting a bride, a barbecue for my international listeners. Therefore, she would not need the lunch as there was going to be plenty of food available. And with that, she gave him her house keys and he left. This next chain of events is according to Philip and his later guilty plea statement. Whether or not all of the events truly occurred in the manner in which he stated is another story. The day was the 26th of October 2019. After he had left the school and ran some errands, he had gone to a friend's house to watch the rugby and drink he would end up drinking quite a bit during a very short period of time. According to him, Allison had then showed up at his mother's house looking for him to say thank you for doing her laundry as well as to give him some food from the bride that day. His mother would then direct her to the friend's house where he was watching rugby. According to him, she had persuaded him to go with her back to her apartment as she had brought him some food. Whether this was the reason or whether she was just trying to get him out of an environment where he was already intoxicated we cannot know. Friends would later witness the two in an argument outside the home before they eventually left to go back to Alison's apartment. Back at her apartment however the two had become embroiled in yet another argument after she had told him to sleep off his current state whilst she went out with friends. He was furious that she had taken him away from his drinking pals just to leave him at home alone. The argument escalated and resulted in him punching Allison as well as biting her face like an animal. He then grabbed her by the neck and dragged her from the lounge to her bedroom, where he began to choke her. As she was left gasping in the bedroom, her body almost lame, she summoned her last bit of energy to ask him to leave. And so he left. But he didn't go very far. He walked to the kitchen, where he opened the drawer, grabs a knife, and returned to the bedroom to stab her. After violently attacking her over and over again, the handle of the knife broke, much to his dismay. Alison was still alive at this point, albeit bleeding profusely and breathing heavily. Philip still had a choice. But instead of coming to his senses, sparing her life, or even going to call for help, he returned to the kitchen to acquire yet another knife. He then made his way back to Alison, where he slit her throat and watched the life drain from her body. She was only 26 years old at the time. He then removed his tracksuit pants, which were stained with blood at this point, and he threw them into the shower to wash them. When he was done, he took her car keys and drove in her vehicle back to his mother's home, where another argument ensued after she questioned him about driving drugs. It would be here that he would spend the night. The next day Philip searched Alison's car, collecting empty bottles and then finding one that still had beer in it. He took it to a friend's house and over the next two days he went on a bender, drinking with this friend, ending up driving to Citrusdal and Grafwater, drunk I might add, to visit other friends. And whilst he was off having a jaw, having the time of his life, Alison's body was lying alone. In her home. Her friends and family became worried after multiple attempts to reach her failed, and she didn't show up for a modeling show that she was supposed to be a judge at. Ultimately, the police and her mother would make the grisly discovery in her Katki Pering Street apartment around 7.15pm on that Sunday. After the discovery was made, it was around this point that Philip's mother reached out to him to let him know that the police were looking for him. You know, seeing as though he was the last person to be seen with Alison. He completely ignored her calls, but his friend on the other hand answered the phone and she had then lied to him and said that Alison had been in a car accident and that the police were looking for Philip. Philip, who was then told the news by his friend of the car accident, burst out crying, even though he was well aware that that was not the truth. This is the point where the friend who was driving the vehicle decided to turn it around and head back home. On the way there, traffic officials met them on the road, his friend driving and Philip lying in the back seat. He was then placed into the officer's vehicle and driven back to Clan William. He was then put into the back of a police vehicle and taken to the police station. Here he would immediately confess to what he had done and he was also sent for a medical examination. He would later state that on the day that Allison was killed, he was fully aware of what he was doing and had full control of his senses. He added though during the later trial that he regretted that the incident took place. Sorry... What? The incident? Oh, you mean the cold-blooded murder of an innocent woman at your hands. Okay. So Philip April, who was 24 years old at the time, was charged with murder, theft of a motor vehicle, and defeating the ends of justice. Upon hearing the news, not only were his friends and family in shock, but more so Allison. Her aunt Lizelle would later state, and I quote, We've met him. We've been with them. With him and his mother. He came to our house, and I couldn't believe it. When they called and told me that he murdered Sussy, as we used to call her, I said, no, somewhere there's a mistake. That can't be Philip. That can't be Philip. But as the story unfolded and I'm listening to everything he did, I'm sensing that he was that person and he was just hiding it very well. In November of 2019, after appearing in the Clan William Magistrates Court, he decided to abandon his bail application. Philip also denied the theft charge, stating that Alison often permitted him to use her vehicle. The state, however, was not buying it. And what they also weren't buying was his guilty plea. Although he had confessed to her murder, the state declined to accept his guilty plea. Why, you may ask? Well, the state advocate, Renee Ace believed that not only was Philip's version of events not the entire truth, but it also lacked vital evidence. She further stated, and I quote, He's not remorseful, he regrets getting caught. And so a trial would therefore follow. During the trial, shocking information would come to light regarding Allison's final moments. Although Philip had confessed to stabbing and slitting Allison's throat, he had failed to mention the other horrific damage he had caused her. A forensic expert, Dr. Linda Liebenberg, would later testify that Allison also had deep human bite marks on her face. Through images shared with the court, she highlighted four bite marks on Allison's nose, mouth, and left cheek. She also added that these wounds would have been incredibly painful due to the sensitive nature of facial tissue. The one bite mark was also so severe that her teeth could be seen through her upper lip. She also stated that Alison had defensive wounds on her hands and her upper arms, consistent with a person trying to ward off the penetration of a sharp object. This information had also conveniently been left out of Philip's statement. The pathologist stated that Allison's level of anxiety during this time would have been severe, with her fighting for her life. Her cause of death was due to, and I quote, unnatural extensive slitting of the throat with massive external blood loss. Allison was partially decapitated with such deep wounds that went right to the front of the spinal column. There were multiple stab and cut wounds on her body too, with three fragments from two different knives found in her throat. Despite this testimony being given, along with the testimony of friends and colleagues, Philip's lawyer, advocate of his requested that the judge consider the compelling circumstances regarding his client's case. He would later ask that harsh sentencing not be given due to the fact that Philip expressed remorse had pled guilty and was found weeping in the back of the vehicle. Furthermore, he had an apparent history of depression and was allegedly suffering from mental issues around the time of committing the murder due to him potentially having failed his last course. His advocate hoped that the judge would see that his case was, in his own words, an example of human frailties. Philip, who at times appeared confused whilst in the dark, stated, and I quote, that he had disappointed a lot of people in one fatal incident. The state advocate René, however, argued for life imprisonment, as femicide continued to be a massive social issue, especially in South Africa. She addressed the effects of Alison's death on her mother, who was now on chronic medication for her anxiety. She mentioned Alison's learners, who would fail to fully understand the brutality of their teacher's passing. She would go on to state, and I quote, Gender-based violence is not a South African police service problem. It's not a problem that the state can fix on its own. Gender-based violence is a pandemic that occurs in our communities. It is thus a problem within our communities that needs to be cast out." Honestly, I couldn't have put it better myself. And eventually, after months, which turned into years of agony for friends and family, the verdict was in. Philip April was found guilty in October of 2022 for the premeditated murder of Alison Plykes. Not only did the judge find that the pair were not in a relationship at the time of Allison's murder, but it was stated that there was a thought process involved in Philip's actions leading up to the murder in question. This meant that he had intent, far more than what was demonstrated in his statement. On the 1st of February 2023, he was sentenced by acting judge Non Tutuzelo Rala Rala to life imprisonment for the premeditated murder of Alison Plykes, as well as five years for the theft of her vehicle. As the verdict was read, the public gallery applauded. Philip, on the other hand, grimaced through the findings prior to the sentencing before immediately turning and walking down the steps back to the holding cell after his fate was heard. Philip's actions, although disturbing, are unfortunately not rare. As you have most probably heard time and time again, there is a war against women currently being waged. Some of you may laugh at this point and think that I'm being overdramatic, but I assure you, I am not. Gender-based violence and intimate partner violence is becoming more of a reality for so many every single day. So, let's look a little deeper. Intimate partner violence is one of the most common forms of violence against women, which includes physical, sexual and emotional abuse, as well as controlling behaviours by an intimate partner. Now, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that men cannot be victims too. Of course they can. However, it has statistically been proven that men are far more often the perpetrators of such violence within intimate partner relationships. Worldwide, it is estimated, according to reports, that 27% of women and girls age 15 and older have experienced sexual or physical intimate partner violence. South Africa is no stranger to incredibly high levels of what is termed gender-based violence, with a third or even up to 50% of girls and women having experienced the same. But of course, the true scope is difficult to quantify, as you can imagine. To understand a bit more about what I mean, especially if you're not from South Africa, please do check out an amazing organisation and movement, Women for Change SA. You can find them on all social media platforms, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram and even Twitter. Every single day they share not only the narratives of victims in this country but also the shocking statistics that are of course 100% fact checked. Just following their account for a week will give you an idea of the reality of so many living in this country. But I digress. So now you know if you didn't before what IPV and GBV are. But the question remains, what are the driving forces behind the social plague? There are so many factors at play, but I'm going to break them down quite basically into environmental and social. Environmentally, poverty and substance abuse are strongly correlated with an increased prevalence of gender-based violence. The side effects of situational factors like poverty contributed to the increased rates in many studies. The side effects of situational factors like poverty often contributed to increased rates. Think about how those in abject poverty circumstances cannot afford to be attending school and thus be exposed to an educational environment where they may learn a different approach of understanding. Next, substance abuse. Although a seemingly obvious Link to make, one that must be examined still. By this I mean that there is a growing substance abuse issue, but why? Often it is impacted by aspects such as poverty, as mentioned, but in many cases it is a result of mental health problems. Now, I want to make this very clear, I'm not saying that every substance abuser has some sort of mental health disorder, but rather there may be a high prevalence of undealt with trauma, emotions and issues that are being covered with the substance use. Another important aspect to study would be the trauma that is experienced within childhood. This trauma could be as a result of experiencing first-hand abuse or neglect, as well as simply witnessing violence, abuse and neglect in their immediate surroundings. I always stress that childhood development is unquestionably the most vital period of human life, where the majority of lifelong behaviours and attitudes are shaped and moulded. To take it further though, as it is clear that IPV and GBV exist not only in poor or underprivileged communities, we need to establish another root cause. And this is where society and societal norms need to be examined. The idea of gender inequality manifests itself into every aspect of life and the higher the inequality the higher the risk of IPV. Think about it. In a country, city or home where traditional or if I may be so bold as to say archaic gender norms are held particularly in the way in which women are viewed and treated, violence in its many forms towards women can sometimes be seen as normal. These ideals are established in early years, where men are raised to be and behave in a certain manner, their gender being seen as superior. The attitudes established can therefore be extremely sexist and domineering, and women are often expected to tolerate their circumstances, mostly in silence. The thing is, the continuous passing down of generational patterns of behaviour like this creates actions and attitudes that become normalised. Normalised in not only situations within the home, but also in other relationships as well as work environments. And these are the norms that must be challenged. As I often say, it's not all men, but it's enough of them that lead others to live in fear. And standing by the sidelines, observing injustice and just keeping silent is just as bad as being part of it in my eyes at least. The thing is, I'm sure you'll understand if you didn't before that fighting this problem requires a multifaceted approach and the deepest dive into the core issues. It's not a pretty place to go, but it's a necessary one. Treating the surface problem is an incredibly short term and in many cases ineffective solution, if I can even call it that. Much like a doctor who wants to get a key diagnosis before they can prescribe the correct medication, society needs to understand the true driving forces before a modern and intricate approach can be developed. So I've discussed some broad contributing factors, but within this case in particular, with Philip April, how did each aspect play a role? Firstly, Philip April lived in what could be deemed as a poor home. Although his family did all they could to love him and raise him with a religious upbringing, he would later find himself becoming more and more dependent on his substance-using habits. It was later divulged in court that he also experienced a great deal of mental issues, particularly depression, after his parents' divorce. So these factors basically affected the way in which he solved problems as well as handled his issues. I think, however, that the main factor that affected him and his behaviour was the influence of societal norms on his worldview understanding. Let me explain. In the beginning of his relationship with Allison, the two were equals, both from lower-income homes, both studying to become teachers. As the months progressed, though, Alison excelled, whilst Philip didn't. Alison moved out of her family home, got a job, bought herself a new car, whereas Philip was still living with his mother, failing vital modules and only gaining work as a teacher's assistant. Let me be crystal clear, in this next section I am merely assuming, as there is no way to know what truly went on in his mind, without of course hearing it from him that is. And even then we wouldn't know if it was the truth or not. But I digress. One could potentially come to the conclusion that over the months that followed, he would end up feeling incredibly emasculated. Now, if you took out the influence of societal norms, one would just be happy for their partner, succeeding and achieving all of her dreams and goals. But in a society that has perpetuated the notion that men are supposed to be breadwinners, men are the ones in charge, sometimes this admiration can permanently get lost in transit. Whereas Allison worked harder when she failed, when Philip failed, he turned to substance use. And as his life spun more out of control, he tried more and more to control the only thing he could, and that was Allison. He weaponized her love for him and often played upon her kindness. He grew from seeing her as a partner whom he loved to seeing her as a possession something that he owned and had control over. When she resisted, he became irate, unable to come to terms with the fact that things were over. Perhaps he still cared extremely deeply for her, but at this point, his darker thoughts took a hold of him. Allison was not perfect, no one is, but she tried. She tried to encourage Philip to do better, to be better, and when it didn't work, she tried to leave. She tried to cut ties, but her mistake was not understanding the lengths that Philip would go to in order to ensure that he could still have Allison under his control. He went so far as to brutally end her life, a decision that was ultimately found by the court to be planned and rationally executed. A decision that forever changed so many lives. I would like to end this episode with the words of one of Alison's friends, Yvette Johannes. No words can describe the sting death leaves. Alison touched each person's heart wherever she went. If you had an encounter with my dear friend, you would know what I'm talking about. She loved unconditionally. She spoke only the truth. She fearlessly took on any task she set her mind to. She lived without regret. She never gave up no matter how difficult things got. She never saw the problem but always the solution. She made something out of nothing. She saw the beauty in everyone. She picked me up when I was down. The list is never ending. She lived fearlessly. She made her mother proud, whom she adored. She made mistakes and picked herself up and just tried again. She was a fighter. Allison, we will always love you and your memory will linger in our hearts. It was was a privilege and honor to be part of your journey. You left a mark forever in our hearts. Fly high, Allison. Your heart may no longer be beating, but your light will never be extinguished. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, stay vigilant, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!